1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No
0: purchase necessary. BGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. And today, uh, joining me for episode 77... Is old friend of the podcast, Brett Cowett of BP Boston. He's the managing editor over there. Brett, welcome back to the show. It's been uh, it's been like a year since you've been on this thing.
0: It feels like ages, Jake. It's been a long time.
1: Yes, sure has. Uh, as I mentioned, Brett is over at BP Boston, where he manages that site. Um, it's a great site for Red Sox stuff, so check that out as well. Um, you can check out Brett at b a Cowett on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you can find me at, at devjake. So Brett, let's get uh, talking. We have, we're have we recording this as soon as the Red Sox just lost to Tampa Bay uh, 6-3. Uh, Porcello wasn't great. Four earned runs, eight hits allowed, uh, two walks. Uh, he's hit a little bit of a rough, rough patch lately, but uh, Red Sox are still first place. They've got a game up on the Yankees uh, tied with a plus 77 run differential for the best in the Division, uh, things are still pretty positive.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean it's they've been on fire the last few games. Like I think three runs in this one game was the lowest they've scored in like the last ten or so. So they've been pretty good. Uh, but you but the cracks are starting to show. I mean you can still like Nunez is becoming an issue at second base. So that's if he wasn't like two weeks ago. He's, he's still he's still kind of being a butcher out there. And I'm honestly happy to see Pedroya coming back tomorrow.
1: Yeah, Pedroia coming back is going to be awesome. As you're listening to this, Pedroia is activated, um, and he is going to be, I assume, playing right away if they're activating him. Um, so I wanted to know from you, Brett, what type of things can we expect from Pedroia moving forward, and sort of what's your expectation for him?
0: I i mean, obviously I hope we get the the Pedroia that does excellent defense, even as he's the second oldest guy on the team. I think he's only like a couple months younger than Hanley Ramirez. So going forward, I, I kind of expect the excellent, excellent defense. I don't really expect the bat because, one, he's, he's going toward the left side of the aging curve. The offense, I don't think, is ever going to come back, barring a couple of hot, hot streaks. So maybe like league average, slightly below league average offense, especially from a second baseman. But he should, considering the Red Sox options for the Keystone – be getting the lion's share of the starts from now on, uh, probably like 75 to 80 percent of the starts, and that might be a conservative estimate. And honestly, this is going to be a much needed reprieve because, as we saw in tonight's game, Nunez had was extremely sloppy, had had like a couple errors. One led to a run. Another was needed a review to prevent a run. So it's it's just going to be stability. I don't think he's going to be excellent. The defense maybe yes, but the stability that he... The stability that he brings is going to be the best thing about him coming back
1: what do you think will be the most noticeable change between him and Nunez obviously there's a world of difference in defensive talent there but where do you think people are going to be able to see that right away it's just the
0: range really like we we've seen Nunez like Nunez has cratered so hard it's hard to find a bigger crater than the one he made falling from how good he was last year so it's it's just going to be the range. Like There's stuff in the hole that Nunez can't ever touch, and we've seen Pedroia do those plays where he just lays out, gets the ball, and pops right back up and shoots over to first Like on the fastest of guys. It's going to be that type of stuff, the stuff that we almost take for granted that he's so good at, and that's where we're going to really see most of the difference from him. It's not going to be with the bats, since I think it's he's going to be a little bit better than Nunez will and maybe better than Brock Holt, but... It's just going to be those rangy plays, that stuff that you don't think Nunez or Brock Holt could ever touch.
1: So i got to be honest. I'm a little surprised you're so bearish on Pedroia's offense. Why why are you so uh, sort of conservative with him coming back?
0: From what I remember, he hasn't been very good lately. I I think last year he was just about league average in terms of offense. Yeah, he was just only about league average. His power just kind of wasn't there anymore. Like last year was... The second year he's had an ISO below 100, the other one being 2014 where he he had a .98, this one's a .099. Uh, it's it's really if he gets a little bit more power than what he did last year, he'll be he'll be league average, maybe a little bit better. But like I think 2016 where he hit 318, 376, 449, that might have been that might be the best year, the last best or really good year he'll have for a while. It's just he's 34. Uh, second basemen really do not age well in terms of offense and just production in general. So, and thing is, I'm a pessimist. I like to keep my expectations low for t- this type of stuff, but seeing how Nunez has been, it's hard to, it's hard to get lower than Nunez's offense. So I think he might just be kind of slightly below average, but anything more I think is just like trying for a dice roll, trying to roll two sixes.
1: Yeah, it, it'll, it'll still seem like a huge upgrade, granted, uh, you know, how Nunez has been playing defense and swinging the bat, as you mentioned. So um, why do you think Nunez has had such a drop-off from what we saw from him last year? Because he was kind of a spark plug last season. I think a lot of it's just kind of being exposed.
0: Uh, coming over to, it's, sometimes it's kind of like when you get a fresh call up and you don't know how to pitch to him, people, it, it takes a while to adjust. It for him like coming to Boston and having a ballpark that isn't that isn't filled with endless voids like AT&T Park was when he was on the Giants it does a lot for your offense and I think for him it just just set a fire under him and he just went crazy and he he brought the power and he made co- and he made really really good contact no matter what he did but now it's the hits aren't falling in he's striking out a lot more and the defense it's it, it's it's okay but it's not Pedroia level and he's and I don't and I don't when they do defensive metrics, I don't think they take in the boneheaded stuff he does like today when he tried to, when he tried to field a Mookie Betts throw back in and it bounced off of him and like flew thirty feet away. It doesn't really take in those kind of things and him just kinda of being lackadaisical. So I think it's just the flaws in his game have kind of been exposed more than they were last year.
1: I think it's fair to say, though, that when he moves to the bench, he's going to turn from below-average starter to above-average bench piece. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's the thing. Like He instantly becomes a surplus once he starts being a bench guy.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. The big uh, elephant in the room, though, regarding this whole activation of Dustin Pedroya is just what the hell is going to happen to... Uh, Blake Swihart. We've talked about this on the program. This has been a a big concern of mine personally uh, for a long period of time. But really, if you're looking at it, Sandy Leone, Mitch Moreland, Brock Holt—that's the bench. Plus Blake Swihart. Eduardo Nunez is taking that spot. So um, we'll probably know by the time this airs. But uh, just to get your prediction in, what do you think? What happens? It kind of feels like it has to be Blake,
0: doesn't it? Like they want to keep Holt. He's been hot in the first part of the season so i mean i guess you want to try to keep that back going even though it even though momentum isn't really a thing you moreland is indispensable right now you're keeping him around there's no way you're not especially after what he's done so far and the fact that he could have done this last year had he not broken a toe and Leon's just kind of there because he's the he's really kind of the best defender on the team and that's kind of sad to say with uh christian Vasquez being around you can't really like get rid of Leon right now and Swihart doesn't As far as we know, he can't really play defense that well, or as on the level of Vasquez or Leon right now. So it's just like he's a, at this point he's a third catcher who can slot in in an emergency to play other positions. And, I mean, Nunez does Nunez does that, just isn't a catcher. So I kind of seems like the only one. He kind of seems like the only one that is disposable. And I hate to say it that way, but he has to go, I guess.
1: So do you think that by the time people are listening to this, that he's traded or just straight up DFA'd? I,
0: I I gotta say he's DFA'd and people wait for him to be outright released. I some or just or just put waivers on him if they think he's still got like anything in his bat left. He just he, he just needs a place to play and it's a shame that the Red Sox couldn't find anything for him. I mean their roster was already so top heavy in terms of who were they who they were gonna start and their benches and their bench had. Had like a bunch of super utility guys and Mitch Moreland, so it's I I, unless they like surprise unless they like surprise surprisingly send down a reliever. I I I mean I guess it has to be him. I wouldn't even guess to what reliever they'd send down if it wasn't him.
1: Yeah, I mean the only relievers that have options right now are Matt Barnes, who they wouldn't send down, Hector Velasquez, Mm -hmm. who they just activated. Um, off the DL. Um, Yeah, everybody else is either out of options or is not really uh, in the discussion to be sent down, Uh, and it would be hard to believe that they would go just without an extra reliever uh, for this upcoming set of games because they have Atlanta uh, coming in for three at Fenway, followed by Toronto for three, followed by Houston uh, at Houston for four. So they're going to need all hands on deck.
0: Yeah, that's a tough stretch right there. That kind of rivals what Cleveland's going through right now. Cleveland just had, I think, three at Houston, four at Cubs, and now they're at home for four against Houston. So So if the Red Sox are going to have something like that, the Braves are surprisingly good. I, they're first place in the NL East, I believe. And it's I just, it feels like it's going to be an uphill battle. I don't know. It, like I'm I'm optimistic on the Red Sox so far, but this is gonna be a really tough stretch.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I don't like four in Houston. That's gonna be a really That's, hard stretch.
0: That oh god, I just get I just get like nightmares of those four game sets in Yankee Stadium where the Red Sox just get clobbered. It's oh man, that just seems like such a bad situation.
1: Yeah, looking at it though, if the Red Sox can take care of business here in this series over the weekend uh, versus Atlanta at home and take care of business against Toronto at home, even if they lose three out of four or if they split with Houston, the schedule looks really nice for them for most of June. They've got Detroit and Chicago at home, followed by Baltimore and Seattle on the road, Minnesota on the road, Seattle at home, and then towards the end of the month it gets – dicey with with LA New York Washington but I mean that's that's going to be a few teams that are not that scary to face
0: yeah it seems like that seems like a seems like a point in time where the Red Sox can actually put some distance because right now they're neck and neck with the Yankees and they really should step on the gas when they get to that point and see they can get some distance or at least some padding because I this these two teams are going to be in the dogfight all year so they need every they need all the space they can get
1: yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to watch Ron Acuña though when he comes to town. That's going to be cool.
0: Oh, he's a fun player. I've heard a ton of really good things about him. He's he and he and Aussie, uh, Aussie Albies are going to be really fun to watch there. I think the Braves got a, the Braves might have got ended up uh, getting two cornerstones for their franchise for the next few years.
1: Yeah, the Braves have done a nice job with that rebuild. It seems like uh, it's going a lot quicker than anybody anticipated. So It would be cool to see that team. Uh, If if I had to put my guess in, though, with with Blake Swihart, I think I'm going to guess that he ends up getting traded for something. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but I think there's still enough interest in him that something's going to happen. But we'll see. By the time this comes out, we could both be wrong, and the Sox will do something we don't expect. But uh, who knows? Yeah. Um, So I want to talk about the rotation real quick. Um, The top three have been awesome, and when I say the top three, I'm talking about um, Chris Sale, Drew Palmer, uh, Rick Porcello, and uh, Eduardo Nunez. And I'm putting Eduardo Nunez there because he's been sneaky really good lately. Eduardo Nunez? Oh my god, Eduardo Rodriguez. (laughs) I've got Nunez on the brain. Um, Oh no. Yeah, Eduardo Nunez. Maybe that'd be a better spot for him right now. <laughs> uh, certainly might be better than Drew Pomerantz. But oh, I want God. I want to hear your take on both David Price and Drew Pomerantz because I did an article on David Price over at BP Boston uh, this past week talking about how his pitch repertoire has changed, and it basically leaves him with a little bit less room for error. So he's still going to have some starts like the one he had yesterday – or I guess uh, Wednesday as you're listening to this, uh, and then the one that he had the, the time before uh, where he was pretty effective. But it seems like he's, he's, he's sort of operating on a razor's edge there. And then you just wrote about Drew Pomerantz. So I kind of wanted to get your take on where you think those two guys are right now.
0: I think Price is starting to find a groove. He looks like he's really found his command. His starts against Baltimore and Tampa Bay were really, really good. Like it was vintage Price. Like Baltimore's line looks looks kind of meh, but then you realize the two runs he gave up were in the ninth inning, and it was like it was like a hanging slider to Manny Machado, and he's gonna hit like 99% of those out of the park. So it, that one, those two, like the last two starts, which sure, what 15 innings combined. That's seventeen strikeouts and three walks. I think he I kinda think he's either gonna he's either back or he's gonna go into a good stretch where he almost seems unbeatable. So I'm fine on price for now, even though I do kinda agree with what you wrote, which is basically the future with him is really, really dicey no matter what he chooses. Um with Pomeranz, though, it's a lot more. I wrote about that today at BP Boston, saying that it everything's kind of bad. His peripherals are bad. His velocity is down by like two to three miles an hour on everything that he uses a lot, like his curveball, his uh, cutter, and his fastball. Everything's just completely down across the board, and he doesn't seem to have his command either. Things just seem completely out of whack. And at first, thing is he's still injured because he had that for, he had that flick, uh, forearm flexor injury that held him out until mid uh, mid April. And but and it's weird because he. He wants to play, obviously, and the Red Sox insist he's healthy, and Pomeranz also says he's healthy. So I, there's there's nothing wrong, at least from that point of view. So what's up then? It's he's not this bad. The last two years have pretty much told us that he's not this bad. He's much better than this. So it's really really difficult to find a solution for him when everything is completely and utterly wrong. He says he found he says that he found a mechanical issue. After throwing a simulated game, I think it was on Wednesday, and he said he was over-rotating, just turning turning his body too much during his uh, follow-through, and he says correcting that will help him when he starts against the Braves on Saturday, and really, that's all we can hope for for at this point, because if nothing really changes after that mechanical tweak, you really kind of have to get worried, and... What's worse is that there's nothing the Red Sox can really do to solve this. There's what like their depth involves Brian Johnson, Hector Velasquez, and Hector Velasquez, and those two have been serviceable, especially out the pen. Brian Johnson, not so much, but whatever. But you don't want to give them extended run because they're not as they're not really that great in an extended run. They can eat up innings, but not efficiently and not like keep your not keep your uh, team in the game all the time because they're just not as good as someone like Drew Pomeranz, and Pomeranz is just all right. But the problem is Pomeranz isn't all right, obviously.
1: Can you so talk it, about some of those underlying numbers that that Drew Pomeranz has had? Because if you look a little deeper, some of the stats like DRA are really pessimistic about what he's done so far this year.
0: Yeah, I mean, even his, his, FI, his FIP is over five, DRA is over five, his ground ball rate is just at 36%. He's given up He's given up homer. He's given up one, 1. 1.6 homers for nine innings. He's walking five per nine. It's oh my lord. It's just a disaster. It's just bad to look at. It's almost like they called up Kyle Wyland again. It's
1: ah, you had to bring that name up, huh?
0: Every time I think of awful Red Sox pitching, I think of him and Tim Wakefield from the end of 2011, where he was just awful and Tim Wakefield was just gunning for 200 wins and they just let him go for it while they were just falling. From uh, first place in the standings, so it was. That's always what I think about during that stuff. But yeah, like last year, velocity for fast velocity for his fastball, 91.7. This year, 89.6. Uh, curveball, 79.6. This year, 77.6. Everything's just really down. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing seems like it's there. He's his swinging strike rate is the lowest it's been in a full season. It's at 7.8. And, I, and the con and the contacts kind of up again across the board, outside the zone, inside the zone, everything just looks hittable. He doesn't have his control. He's not getting whiffs. The, the velocity again, I can't harp on that enough. Nothing looks great. And I hope the mechanical tweak does something. I mean, he's done this before. I think we talked about this last year on a podcast where he said he found a tweak it, that he fixed in his in his uh pit when he was pitching last year. And then he became like one of the stalwarts of the rotation for the rest of the year. It was like in May again. Mm-hmm. And But now, like, you just kind of hope that happens again. Like, he just strikes gold. Because, like, this is not great. Like, if you you can definitely win the division with just Sale, Porcello, Rodriguez, Price, all pitching, like, the way they are right now. Like, maybe, like, not as bad as Porcello pitched, like, the last couple of times. But with those four and then, like, a crappy Drew Pomeranz okay, that's a pretty spooky rotation. I'm not exactly a fan of facing that if I'm any other team. But if Drew Pomeranz is good and, like, your worst pitcher is a version of Rick Porcello that's closer to 2016 version of Rick Porcello than his 2017 iteration, that's kind of a terrifying rotation. Like, that's that's front to back really good. And it probably is up there for best rotation in the majors if you really want to think about it.
1: Yeah, I agree. When when everybody's going right and healthy, that's a really scary rotation. I, I want to ask you, though, if if Pomerantz ends up having a really bad start against the Braves after getting two additional days rest, getting pushed back a little bit in the rotation, if he does get hammered, do you think that they would maybe DL him and move Stephen Wright over to the fifth starter spot until he sort of figures out whatever's happening? It's a possibility. But then you got to realize what
0: the next start, what uh, Pomeranz's next uh, projected start in the rotation would be. And that would be against the Astros. So, at that point, you're just kind of worrying like how much damage can you limit, because then you've got like Stephen Wright facing the Astros in Houston with a knuckleball that you don't know if it's going to be good or not. So, it's, I, it's, it's a hard choice because if he's not good, if he's if he's not good where his command's still off and velocity is still down. Yeah, I can see it, but if he's not good where like they get, where like the Braves like maybe like get one walk and a blue hit and then someone hits a massive home run, maybe not because it's kind of like oh, that's kind of like just middling command with just one bad pitch mixed in. So it's it's got to be a hard choice because you're making a bunch of your judgment calls and what you'd see out of one game, but this is But the more I think about it, the bigger this game gets for Pomeranz.
1: Yeah, it is going to be big. It's going to be uh, really big for roster implications and and everything going forward. So we'll be monitoring that. I want to talk about the bullpen as well, because since the last time we had this podcast, uh, Carson Smith decided to get angry and throw his glove and (laughs) basically uh, is now going to be potentially out for the remainder of the year. Uh, What that leaves in the bullpen is Kimbrell, Kelly, Barnes... Uh, those are all good things, right there. Um, but then Wright, Johnson, and Velasquez are those other spots. Bobby Pointer just got sent down today when when Velasquez was Velasquez was yeah. activated. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I want to talk to you about the pen. Do you think that this is still an area of need for the team, and do you think this is the most likely area the team will address in the uh, you know coming months?
0: It's not as big as a disaster that Pete Abraham will like to have you think, since every time there's like a reliever doing somewhat badly, he just keeps yelling that the Red Sox need relief help. But um, I forgot
1: Hembry too. Yeah, he's in there.
0: Oh yeah, let's just leave him in there. We don't. We don't really. I don't really want to. You know, talk about how bleh he's been. <laughs> but um, he's. It's not as big of a concern as I would honestly believe anymore like Carson Smith was kind of just okay he was already right. he was serviceable
1: yeah he wasn't great
0: yeah he was just there I, I mean losing him is just like oh we just need to, need to find an average reliever
1: oh oh man I wish we could have Addison Reed back woo but we might be getting that in Tyler Thornburg when he comes back I mean Tyler Thornburg
0: that's not a high bar to clear what Carson Smith did this year just pitch more than 14 innings and do better Congrats. You done. You did really well. But it's – I. he's – from what I've heard about him in Pawtucket, he's been good, looked good. I mean he's looks like he's ready to join. And I think the biggest surprises have been Joe Kelly and Matt Barnes. Like I have a running joke about Matt Barnes that he has, he's gone this long without a workplace disaster. And I don't remember the last time he's had like a meltdown. That's crazy because it seemed like last year he had one a week.
1: Yeah, you know what? It's weird about Matt Barnes. I actually trust him more than I think that I probably should trust him right now. And I was looking at his underlying numbers before we got onto the podcast today. And one of my favorite things to look at with relievers is strikeouts minus walks. And for him, uh, he was at – let me just ha- – I have this up right here. Um, tr- tr- yeah, relievers. He was at 14. 20 percent uh 20.5 percent for him um which is a really good mark but then i was looking at his walk rate or uh, walk percentage 14.5 um that is higher than i expected for someone who i have a lot of trust in so far this year it's just that he's been getting a ton of strikeouts he's striking out nearly 35 percent of the guys that he's facing um but joe kelly has sort of changed my mind about him a little bit I'm I'm actually buying into what he's doing he's throwing his change in his slider more and not relying on his heat as much this year and I might start to trust him a little bit it sounds I don't know it's weird I don't like these feelings about trusting relievers anymore
0: yeah it's strange especially relievers that have blown up in our faces so many times and two guys we've had just complete like threads of jokes on Twitter about for like the last few years like Joe Kelly. Obviously he's got great stuff. It's a shame he couldn't strike anyone out last year. Literally nobody. I think something like 60% of the guys he got into full counts walked. It was something crazy like that. It was ridiculous. And now he's finally found that third pitch. That slider is disgusting. Like there was a there was a uh, sequence last year from when he was facing Aaron Judge in the Bronx. Where he threw, when he threw that fav, he threw that fabled 104 mile an hour fastball, like that was out of the zone, which is so hilariously Joe Kelly, I can't even begin to start laughing. But the next pitch was just like a 90 mile an hour slider that was perfect. Just bro, just started off middle in, just started breaking to the outside and judge whiffed right through. It was just a perfect slider. I'm like, use that more. Yeah, your curveball. Nobody swings and misses at your curveball, man. Just use that slider. People whiff on that all the time. Just go with the slider all the time. And uh, and he's now he's
1: not walking people either. So, oh, my God, here comes Joe Kelly relief ace. Yeah, just in time to get that contract, man.
0: Oh, exactly. He's doing the opposite of Drew Pomeranz is doing in their contract years.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is nice to see that slider more because I do remember that exact pitch you were talking about. He's He's come up in some big spots, though. That's the thing about Joe Kelly is every time I start to lose faith in him, even when he hasn't been as good as he's been this year, he has a moment like that where he just, you know, gets a really big out in a, in a huge situation. So, uh, keeps reeling me back in, man. Yeah,
0: and I guess, Matt, what's the craziest stat so far, I think, is Craig Kimbrell has a 37.5 strikeout rate, right? Mm-hmm. When we we're talking about Matt Barnes, he had a 35% strikeout rate. Like, it's weird to think that he Kimbrell and Barnes are in the same neighborhood for strikeouts right now. It's a bit crazy. That curveball for Barnes, though,
1: can be just so filthy.
0: Oh, it's such a hammer. It's great to watch when it's on. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If he can locate that pitch, man, it's good. Okay. Um, so I like seeing good Barnes. I agree with you, kind of. I think that people are freaking out a little bit too much about the bullpen. I generally think that this is a pretty good unit, and I even feel pretty good about, you know, Hector Velasquez when he comes in there and. Um, not so much with uh, Brian Johnson, but I mean, if Brian I Johnson's your biggest problem, like it's it's not yeah. that bad.
0: I mean, if the Red Sox really need to go out and get a lefty, I mean, if the Texas has Alex Claudio, who like it's like their seventh inning reliever, and you could probably get him for you could probably get him for a penny. There, done. He gets like 60% ground balls. He throws lefty and he throws sidearm. Try to hit him. Yeah, there you go. Perfect lefty reliever, just for you, if you need him.
1: I'm into it. Yeah, if they're if they're gonna make something like that, that's totally fine with me. I don't want to see this team go out and, you know, leverage the future for some other reliever. Um, you know, it's just it's it seems like that hasn't worked out so well in the past.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you don't really need to go out and get much. If Thornburg is good because if you can just rotate Kelly, Barnes, Thornburg through that seventh and eighth innings to build that bridge to Kimbrel. And then get Alex Claudio or someone similar like that to just knock out any tough lefties. I I actually kind of like that pen. I don't have to clench my butt cheeks every time <laughs> every time like Price comes out. I it's I'm actually kind of enjoying. It. I'm like okay this this isn't too bad. Just get a couple strikeouts and I'm good.
1: Yeah, makes for an easier watching experience.
0: Yeah, it's not like how I called half of Pomerantz's starts, which were nails scraping on a chalkboard. So. Mm. It's a, it's, more, it's more like good music instead of actual screeching.
1: <laughs>
0: the visual equivalent of it.
1: So watching uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. though at the plate has been a little bit like nails on a chalkboard recently. <laughs> uh, we talked about this at length last time on the podcast, but I wanted to get your impression of Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, obviously, he's been slumping like crazy. Uh, he's been slumping for geez i don't even know how many months at this point a long time uh dating back to last year uh, do you think the team is doing the right thing here by limiting jackie bradley jr's playing time and sort of what other choices do they have at this point
0: i mean he they're kind of forcing this situation you know uh he needs to hit and he's gotten two months there have been no like monstrous Jackie Bradley Jr. streaks that we're used to because he usually, like, alternates months where he decides to own the world and become, like, the next Mike Trout. But so far, it's just been the bad Jackie Bradley for the last two months. And, yeah, it looks like he might come around. Like, the last couple games in Tampa Bay, he's barreled up a ton of stuff. He's looked a lot better. But there's still, like, those high outside fastballs, so almost never lay off of those anymore. It's... he's... he just looks feeble. And the problem with this is the Red Sox now at the leverage is his defense worth having him in the lineup? Having him in the lineup, it's we're going back to the age-old question again because it's not like the alternative is a is another like decent defensive outfield. The alternative is playing J.D. Martinez in the outfield, which is an idea I absolutely hate because he's a horrible outfielder and last year he had a foot issue that like had him that like had him out for like what a month or two.
1: Yeah. So. And you can't afford got, to lose his bat to an injury.
0: But at the same time, like the guy who through a chain through the chain through a chain of lineup switches, the guy who comes in for him is Mitch Moreland. So you've got to leverage his defense and non-existent bat versus really good first base defense and a live bat. Like Mitch Moreland just crushed one to the back wall of the trough just now. Right. So it's. Honestly like, you kinda have to go with JD Martinez in left right now and just Mookie or Benintendi in center. It's it's kind of like untenable to have that bat in the lineup unless he really starts hitting. And i I've, I've kinda gotten hope. He's the things he's barreled lately have been just absolutely scalded. But also I don't know how like it's only been like two or three games. You just I guess you stick him in there for two more, see if see if whatever he's done differently sticks but if he just can't be better at the plate than he is right now, then there's no reason to start him over Moreland.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm not optimistic. I mean, I'm looking at it right now and dating back to the second half, the all-star break essentially of last year, uh, Jackie Bradley jr. Is batting well under 200 since that time period. Yeesh. So he batted 204 in the second half last year and he's batting 178 so far in 2018. Um, it's looking more and more like that 2016 season where he had 5.3 war, uh 119 WRC+, plus. that's going to be the high water mark for him. I I just can't see him having a better offensive season than that and it's it's hard to believe that he even did that in the first place watching him right now. Yeah, that's kind of one of the things that like just kind of got casually forgotten is that he was really really good
0: that year. Like he was better than Le- he was he was just exceptional like everybody like it seemed like everybody on the offense that year had a really good year and it but like Jackie Bradley Jr. especially was one of the ones you're like oh my god he did that he's just going to be one of the guys you look back on and were surprised he did that in any one year in particular and i guess that's the standard we kind of hold him to which is kind of unfair to him but he's doing so bad that it's you just hope for anything and like not, even, not even what he did in 2016. You just hope for anything than what he's done. And he's not really, apart from the last couple of days, he hasn't really given that to you.
1: So let me, it's ask, just... so let me ask you this then. Um, if you're managing the Red Sox, or let's just say you're playing GM of the Red Sox, you're, you're Dave Dombrowski right now, and it comes to the All-Star break, and Jackie Bradley Jr. is still hitting like this, do you think that it's a bigger need for the team to go out and try and add another outfielder or do you think that you'd try and address the bullpen
0: oh that's tough the thing is with the outfield is that even if even if you're not starting Jackie Bradley jr that just makes the offense overall better and you hope that in the playoffs the short sample leans more toward the offense than the missed defensive miscues but I'm always paranoid with the with defense and the playoffs because it always seems like bad defenses get exposed. Like the thing that sticks out in my mind all the time when it comes to bad defenses in the playoffs are the Texas Rangers runs in 2010 and 2011, because Vlad Guerrero could not play right field in 2010 and Nelly Cruz let that, let that David freeze triple go past him in 2011. And those are like seared into my mind about how bad defense can bite you in the ass in the playoffs. So it's, you kind of, you just kind of have to roll the dice and just hope that Ben, just hope that JD Martinez doesn't ruin you defensively in the playoffs at that point. Even though he kind of didn't help his own cause in the first inning tonight, but I, I guess I just have to use JBJ as like a defensive replacement if they, at that point, if he's not gonna, if he's, if he's hitting this bad. I mean what can you do you can't you can't conceivably start him anymore you're just giving way at bats at that point
1: yeah and he's certainly one of the better defensive replacements that you could possibly dream up of having even if you have to rely on JD in the outfield a lot more this season than you thought yeah uh I'm looking at Vladimir Guerrero's 2010 season with the Rangers right now Mm -hmm. he is just a Uh, a spitting image of all offense and just zero defense at all he he batted 300 345 496 with 29 home runs uh in 152 games that year as like an old man who was just basically out there standing in the field and not moving at all yeah he was stiff
0: as a board man and like every time like i see like Oh, the best the best baseball players from last decade. It's all, like half of them are always just like random like Giants doubles going past him in right field in AT&T Park. I'm like, wow, that is molasses in winter right there.
1: <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, so moving on, uh, a couple minor league updates here. Uh, last time we were on the show, we we ran out of time, so we didn't get to mention this, but uh, the the top prospect in the Red Sox system, Jason Groom, uh, Jay Groom, is on the DL with Tommy John surgery. Um, that is in addition to Michael Chavez being suspended for 80 games, so it gives you an idea of sort of where the system is is at right now, but uh, go check out <laughs> Cutter Crawford if you need uh, need some 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 positivity. Cutter Crawford and Mike Sharwin or Schwarin are having good years. So it's it's not all terrible down there.
0: Yeah, it's just not a banner, just not a banner year for the uh, top two prospects in the Red Sox system right now, as it? it just doesn't seem really good.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, we are <laughs> looking for a rebound from those two guys, but uh, it's gonna gonna have to be a while for for Jay Groom. Um, mm. First listener question of the night comes from S. Johnson, and he asks us better return for Swihart, average big league reliever with only one or two years of team control remaining, or a lottery ticket prospect with tools but no real track record? If you had to pick one of those as a potential return, what would you go with, Brett?
0: I would have to go with the reliever. I mean, which one of those is – I mean, if you're competing right now, which one of those is going to give you a major league impact immediately? It might not be a big major league impact, but the average reliever that has, like, two years of team control for a guy that, like, you couldn't start at all? Yeah, I'll I'll take that over a lot. I'll take that over a lottery prospect at any point. I like solid reliever, like an average reliever is just a solid reliever. And for some reason, those are always in demand. And I'll take those forever.
1: Yeah, you know, I kind of agree. I like the idea of a lottery ticket prospect, but I really don't think you're going to be able to get anybody with high, high end talent uh, for Blake Swihart right now. So, yeah, I agree. Win now. Go for that. Uh, next question of the night and last question of the night comes from, uh, Brady Childs and he asks us thoughts about this false reputation that Cora has for being a sabermetric manager. Brett, you want to tackle this? I guess the reputation kind of sprung from Cora being more so, Cora being just
0: different and perceivably better than Farrell. I think Cora is willing to try more new things, but he's kind of like starting to, take his dings as a manager. Like he's not really pinch hitting a lot of guys. Like just weird weird times to pinch hit guys. I think what was it that a game in Yankee stadium where they could have pinch hit Moreland and he didn't do it until the ninth and a Chapman was in. So it's just like, what what were you waiting for, man? Did you think they weren't going to bring a Chapman in? Like if they had like a one or two run lead, but it's, I think it's just because he's more open to like experimenting and switching things up. And just he's not like and like at least publicly he doesn't seem he doesn't seem like you're talking to a brick wall of a human like John Farrell was because trying to get any, trying to elicit any like candid answers out of John Farrell just felt tough like not like Bill Belichick tough but it just felt like you weren't just gonna get anything like personable from him you're just always gonna get the you're just always gonna get the cut and dried like processed answers out of him and Cora just seems more human course, like it's I, I guess i already used personal but he just seems likable yeah and he just gets the, and he just gets this reputation because he is because he is that way and it's i i don't know where the sabermetric thing came from i don't i didn't think he was all that much i kind of hoped he would have made the help helped make the base running a little bit better than it is it's still pretty garbage but i i don't know where that came from it just I just thought he was just going to be a better... I just thought he was just going to be better. I didn't think he was going to be sabermetric. I just thought he was going to be better than Farrell. I
1: I think he sort of carried that reputation over because the Astros are just so big on sabermetrics, and I think that just because he was there, people sort of assumed that he was going to bring that, but I think what he really brings to the table is a clear communication style with the team. He was a former player, Um he was a, you know, utility infielder, uh, guys who pay attention to what's happening on the bench probably more than anybody outside of the catchers. Um, it's it, it's a really important position to be in, and I think he's handled it amazingly well so far. And I do think the, one of the innovative things that he's been doing this year is just the amount that he's rusting guys uh, early in the year. And he's done a good job keeping Chris Sale's workload down as well. So I have to say I've been impressed.
0: Yeah, I, I gotta agree with you on that. Like some of the tinier things, like keeping guys fresh in the beginning of the season, so the stretch run won't be won't be like the final third of a marathon where people are exhausted and you just hope they don't fall you just hope they don't fall apart. Um but yeah, at least in terms of like keeping at least in terms of keeping guys fresh early, not like keeping sailing for eight innings, hoping you can get like ten strikeouts out of somebody. I think he's done really well with that. I I don't I mean, going back to the sabermetric thing, I, I, I don't know. It, he just seems like a guy who would be open to trying trying it, but he wouldn't bring all these sabermetric, sabermetrically inclined choices into the clubhouse himself. He'd just be open to them.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. All right, Brett, that has been our show. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please go on, rate, and review us on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, you can subscribe to us there. Um, and let us know if you like the show. Um, you can follow Brett on Twitter at bacowit. You can follow myself on Twitter at DevJake. Also, remember to follow the Over the Monster Twitter account for all your Red Sox news as well. That's at Over the Monster. And uh, thank you for listening, and we will be back with you next time. Thanks a lot, Brett. Yeah, thank you.